Well, hello and welcome to Pod of the Gaps, the podcast that seeks to bridge the gap between culture, theology, films and all sorts of interesting things. Uh, I'm Mike Lotz and I'm joined as ever by Andy Bannister and Aaron Edwards, but not as ever. This podcast has actually been recorded quite late at night. My watch tells me it's actually 10 past midnight. If our listeners are wondering why we are recording this so late at night, Aaron, what were you doing this evening? This evening, I was at a cinema and uh, watching, of course, as, as the whole world seems to have been of late, uh, the James Bond film. But of course, you two both saw Bond recently, and I had the interesting experience of uh, doing it, so I thought it would be fun for me to have the fresh reaction. You may be wondering, listeners, why we are recording this just after Aaron has got back from the cinema. And, and that is because we actually felt that we wanted to reflect on the Bond film. But one of the things that really hit me as I came out of the cinema last night and looked at what I felt was a fairly depressed crowd coming out of the cinema as well, was it wasn't just a bad film, but actually this film was bad because it was telling me something bad about our culture, something that's gone wrong. And actually, so what we want to do is to think about Bond, but also not only think about the film, but what the film tells us more generally about where our culture is going. Uh, So that's where we're thinking of going. Um, This is uh, our reflections on it. Um, Andy, you were the first to watch it, though. I was. So what were your reflections yeah. coming in? Part of, my, um, part of my frustration, of course, is the fact that um, they obviously, when Daniel Craig was cast, I thought, yet again, they have failed to cast me as, as Bond, because I think I would just, <laughs> you know, I would naturally, you know, look good as being a sort of, you know, suave superhero um, kind of thing. So, but, but once again, I got I got past him. No, I think it's interesting. I think I, I, I went and saw it with my, with my mm. wife. And that's that's good because I got a second, you know, sort of take on it. Because sometimes I respond to things a lot. Am I just being negative? Am I overthinking this? And like, she was more apoplectic than than uh, than I was. And actually, we've we've we would, we've just been spending the last few evenings working back through the kind of classic Bond films. <laughs> I, love, I love that you mentioned that. So yeah, you, you do like kind of so literally tonight. Therapy. We watched Octopussy, and I think what's interesting some of the, the issues that I think the current Bond film raises for in terms of what's going on in culture and some of the some of the things that sort of concern me actually watching some of the classic stuff has actually brought into stark relief actually so I mean there's a whole number of things I, I could pick but I think I suppose like the first one I would say is I think I was it was another illustration that I think as a culture we are struggling with maleness you know Bond you know <laughs> I, we don't have I don't have any talks for his ethics like, you know I'm not saying he's some sort of wonderful Christian hero he, he's, a, he's, he's, he's a womanizer and, a, and an assassin that's the Bond kind of character but you know the, the usual structure is of a Bond film up until you know Daniel Craig got parachuted and starting wing all over the legacy the usual kind of um, sort of structure is you know you've got a bad guy or sometimes a bad girl actually but you've got the evil genius who wants to sort of you know pursue kind of world domination or whatever and uh, and then you've got incomes bonds, and you know you've got stunts, explosions, you know seat of the pants type stuff. Right at the end, you think it's all over. You think the bad guys won, and then you know in some dramatic move, the hero wins, gets the girl, and sails up into the, the sunset. But of course, because of the culture, we are struggling with with with, with maleness. You know, everything is is viewed through the lens of toxic masculinity. You know, boys are constantly told, you know, all the things that make you a boy, being high energy and physical and stuff. That's a bad thing. Um, you know, in fact, somebody once said that boys in our culture are now increasingly viewed as defective girls. Um, you know, you can't have a kind of clean cut action hero, I think in quite the same way. And so 
I suppose I'd come right out and say it feels like it feels like Bolton's been emasculated. Um, mm. But I think that is part of a broader issue. And we've mentioned on the show before, you know, the Canadian psychologist Jordan Peterson. I think Jordan said some good things, some other things I disagree with. So this is, we're, not, we're not the Jordan Peterson fan club. But what has been talked about by many commentators is he gets millions of young men watching his videos as he talks about, you know, what masculinity is actually really like um, and what it really means to be a man. And I think a lot of guys are trying to look for kind of role models and what it means to be heroic. Mm-hmm. And I think Bond was, you know, okay, it was a bit of Hollywood fun, but actually kind of tapped into that. It was something to aspire to in terms of you can be that that hero who's who who writes wrongs and so forth. And I think the fact that's being torched, I think, is a just a, just a little indicator that there's something bigger going on around men and masculinity in our culture. Maybe I'm overthinking it. What do you guys think? Yeah, uh, it's, it's interesting. I mean, uh, you know, it's funny what you say about it, almost the kind of uh, identify male role models identifying again. There's things that are not ideal about Bond, clearly from a Christian perspective. But um, it's interesting how I don't know if you guys have this feeling. Like, that the, whenever I come out of a Bond movie, especially maybe especially late at night because you're a little bit more crazy or something, <laughs> you get into your car <laughs> and you sort of half you, you're looking around. You're like you, you, you half hope there'd be some kind of turbo projecting missile uh, from your Renault Scenic uh, and it doesn't quite <laughs> appear and then so you're driving home you're like hours, actually. We had this, this could become an Aston Martin DB6 if I just you know imagine hard enough um, or, or someone comes behind you in the wing are they maybe they're after me who knows maybe I just have to do some manoeuvring <laughs> it's funny you mention that Aaron I know you're about to make a point but yeah. I remember the first Bond film I ever watched was Goldfinger and I oh, watched it yes. at my friend Michael's he lived down the road about 100 yards away and I was scared witless because I was quite young. Yeah. And I remember walking like the 100 metres down the road back to my house, like <laughs> ab- <laughs> hiding behind every tree and like suspecting every person in every car. It was so weird. It's, it's, so, it's so true. There's a kind of like an identifying, isn't it, with the situation. It's quite fun. I, I, funny enough, mine is a less uh, exciting sounding. Uh, my first Bond was Tomorrow Never Dies, the one after Goldeneye. So mm. we must not be that far apart in age. I won't ask you your age, mm. one. but um, yeah, I went. I went to Tomorrow Never Dies with my mum in the cinema on a weeknight. So it felt quite exciting uh, to go after school, kind of in, as an mm. evening thing. So it was quite cool. Uh, so I don't know if that I'd probably maybe that would be my favourite Bond. Andy, what's your favourite Bond? But before I actually end up making my actual substantive point, well, well, actually, I was going to say. I, I, let me answer that and make a very quick point off, but not too long to get back to you. So actually I think tomorrow never dies is one of my favorite bonds because mm. Brosnan is probably the first kind of bond. I, I really remember kind yeah. of, you know, watching the cinema, but what's interesting about that film, and maybe we, we may talk about this later or not. I don't know. is not merely is there a problem with masculinity to go in the new bonds. You know, one of the things that there was a lot of song and dance about, they had the new 007, which used to be kind of Bond's mm. secret ID number. And of course, the new 007, the new agent, is a black female. But mm. actually, I have to say, she's actually relatively pathetic, mm. I thought. She doesn't actually do a lot. Whereas in Tomorrow, and also, really, she's trying to be a man, I think, through the whole yeah. thing. Absolutely. It's really like, well, yeah, she's just a man, but happens to be a woman in that role. Tomorrow yeah. Never Dies, of course, the sidekick in that is the Chinese agent, yeah. um, basically, who is, you know, easily Bond's equal. Um, yeah. you know, actually fights better than he does. The scene in the bicycle shop yeah. where she's doing the Kung Fu stuff is just, oh, like, yeah, yeah. she's not just, try- she's not trying to be him. That's what's so, mm. so you've, you've actually, ironically, you know, I think gender stuff is so messed up right now, not merely a, a, a 
can we not do heroic blokes? The only way we can do a heroic woman is to just make her look like a, mm. a man. Yeah. And so I, <laughs> I think popular culture and storytelling is, is really up a, up a blind yeah. alley at the moment. No, I've re- yeah, that's you really interesting. To make, so. yeah, I, did, I did. I don't know where it's gone now. It's, it's lost in some <laughs> Pierce Brosnan uh, other, other world. Uh, but no, Brosnan was definitely a great Bond, wasn't he? Um, I, I think it's interesting, exactly as you said, that I've, funnily enough, I was having a conversation with a, one of our PhD students today um, who's female and was kind of thinking about the issues of, of theology and women in theology and this kind of thing and how so many, um, most of the women who end up doing theology at academic level PhDs are pushed towards feminist theology, which is really interesting. So they actually almost, it's like, this is, this is what you're supposed to do. You, we have this map mapped out for you. Don't go do like systematic theology or something. No, that's very, almost like a male territory. No, go and do feminist theology and just talk about women's issues or talk about gender issues or talk about these particular identity issues. And she's kind of expressing frustration with this because almost it's a way that that the wider problem of feminism, and I'm sure maybe we'll do a whole episode on feminism one day, um, but the wider problem would be that exactly as you say, that it's forcing women into a certain mould and that you need to become like men or compete with men in this particular way otherwise it will fight for your corner in this particular way otherwise you can't really be yourself you can't just go and do the stuff you need to sort of do it in 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 a man's world ironically it it means that they don't end up um getting to be themselves or be their best selves because and so in a weird way she was even articulating that it's almost the triumph of of a, a worse version of patriarchy that the women end up having to be like men in order to compete with them and then they'll end up losing in reality anyway despite how much propaganda there is in, in so much of our media and culture, which would suggest that, you know, women can compete with men physically, which you often, have you ever seen some of those things? You know, my friend was saying, watching something with his wife and, uh, you know, there'd be sort of these, a SWAT team kind of called in and they were all female who kind of just, you know, beat up all these guys and stuff who like twice the size of them. And of course that's possible. And, you know, they're very highly trained, brilliant, skilled women there will be in the world. But it, it's just interesting how there's a sort of, agenda in the culture to push that narrative so that all women will think they can aspire to this um, sort of level and compete with men in that way, which is probably why, as you say, Andy, they've put a, a female bond, well, yeah, no, sorry, not a female 007, as it were, to, to, to jump into that role. But it doesn't kind of, it kind of doesn't quite work, does it? Because there's, you know, elements of it which, which end up sort of defeating itself. Hmm. And isn't it interesting, like you were saying, that what they've had to do is kind of masculinize the female character, mm. um, but then they have to feminize the male character. So, <laughs> yeah. so actually, like we're, yeah. we're always kind of like gender reversal here yeah. because it's like actually you can't allow people to be, you know. And actually, you know, as, as Andy was saying, I think when we were chatting about it before, is that you know, it's not that there weren't strong female characters in Bond. Mm. You know, it's, mm. it's, yeah, obviously there were the kind of like oh James, James, kind of yeah. like you know, yeah. they kind of pathetic. But but actually, there were you know. My wife's favourite um, Bond is Moonraker, and um, yeah, you've got a very strong um, female lead in that, um, who quite often puts puts James in his place and makes him look a bit stupid at times. So it's not saying you know the guy always has to be the one that knows how to do it, and the woman's the pathetic one that needs to be saved by the man. You know, it it can be the other way, but but there is a femininity still to that woman, rather than having to kind of masculinise, if if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. No, that's right. Yeah, they're, they're definitely. They're, I think that's why it's reflective of our gender-confused times. Like mm. that's why this. That's why this. Bond, in a weird way, like again, I, I sort of almost have to keep 
we have to keep adding an apologetic because there'll be some listeners who are like, what? Why do you care? Why does Bond matter? And it doesn't, in a way, it doesn't really matter. Um, It's just a kind of cultural trope. Um, But it's something that I I was wondering why there was so much hype about this Bond. I think, Andy, you'd mentioned, oh, it's the, you know, because of the delay and it's the first big blockbuster after lockdown and stuff. So I thought, okay, yeah, that probably is um, part of it. But it it does seem like Bond is is something that's owned by the people um, because, you know, there's different, Obviously, there's different actors over the years. There's different directors. Even if there's a sort of a thing you're mentioning, who is it, Andy? That some family who are behind. Oh, the broccolis you have out. Oh, yeah, they're, the they're, they're kind of yeah, the but not, not many people know who they are. So it's almost like Bond is. There's a certain set of criteria that make a Bond, and people are kind of upset at the sort of changing of the Bond, which just tells you something interesting about culture. How we look to certain heroic figures as as troublesome as they can be, and, and as imperfect as they can be. There's something that changes when you when when a, a commonly held heroic figure or story or narrative or folk tale is taken and twisted in a different direction or, or maybe propagandized. I think so. That's why there probably will be people who are frustrated by this and see this almost as a kind of taking this thing that belongs to the people in some way and using yeah. it as a weapon to tell them what you know they ought to think about these ideological yeah. things. Even if even if subtle, in subtle ways, both LGBT and and for race and, and sexuality yeah. in general, think, all those things together, really. I think you're right. And I think on the on the point of, you know, why does this does this matter? I think uh, I think a lot of listeners of Follow the Gaps will, will will get some of this stuff. But if you're sort of new to the show and sort of sort of easing away into this, I think one of the things is that I think things like, you know, sort of, you know, cinema, TV, um, you know, literature, music, those kind of things, I think they give you an insight into the way a culture is moving far more than what you're going to go, go, go and do, kind of read the philosophers. I mean, I think the philosophy is where perhaps the thinking of the stuff is being played out, but the culture is where this stuff is being ground down into the, into the you know, into the mm. mainstream. You know, most people that you meet, your workplace, your colleagues, your, your university student, fellow students, they're not going to be sitting there reading the philosophers, but they're going to be watching, they're going to be digesting the culture through those mm. popular mm. products. I think they're, they're helpful. Mm. Which brings me to the point you made there, actually. The, the other thing I, I was struck watching this this movie that you uh, you set this one up nicely, um, Aaron, there, is that I think the other trend I think we see going on in culture right now, and it's quite fun, well, not fun, it's interesting to see it happen in culture, popular culture as well, is the historical revisionism. So, you know, just as in culture, we're going back and rewriting kind of history. So everything our ancestors did was, was bad. Um, you know, we rewrite history to, you know, you know, we, we sort of look back at, you know, Roman history. There weren't enough sort of LGBT black figures in it. So we go re- rewrite history in order to, you know, make it look like it should do. And so history no longer becomes about history. It becomes about scoring political points. So we see that everywhere. Um, same trend that leads to pulling down of statues and all this other kind of stuff of, you know, we can't deal with the fact that history is a bit messy and complex, so we rewrite it. And the same happens, I think, with cultural history of going, oh, okay, rather than just accept that, you know, Bond is, you know, a character of his time and, and therefore, you know, you don't, just because it's portrayed a certain way, that doesn't mean that we're recommending his particular ethics or, or approach to life. No, we have to go and rewrite it. So we have to, you know, turn him from an action hero into this sort of broken, wounded figure that he's been all through the Daniel Craig era, where he's got all these hang-ups and internal yeah. stuff going yeah. on, which, quite frankly, we managed to get through 20 bonds without that being an issue. Um, mm-hmm. But suddenly it's like, no, we need to then sort of re- rewrite everything. Um, yeah. It's been similar in other franchises. I'm a big science fiction fan. And similar stuff in Doctor Who would be a good example mm-hmm. where, where that's really played out, culminating in the last three years 
you know, the attempt to actually have a female Doctor Who, which actually is interesting because that has killed the ratings. And the BBC are now so terrified they're about to bring back Russell T Davies, who recreate, who, 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 re, who relaunched Doctor Who in the early 2000s, um, you know, when it, when it sort of become, died a death, and they're having to bring him back in to go, right, we need to just reset this because it's become so wokeified that actually it's killed itself. And I think Bond is in grave danger of, of going down the same rabbit, rabbit hole, quite frankly. I think, I think it'd be interesting to see what happens with Netflix and Lord of the Rings um, oh, yeah. and see what they do with that. I mean, I, I'm slightly worried, <laughs> to yeah. be honest. Yeah. Um, uh, but actually one of the things that was great, I think, about Peter Jackson's depiction of Lord of the Rings was actually, although uh, as far as I'm aware, he's, he's not a Christian believer, he preserved something of the worldview mm-hmm. of Tolkien mm-hmm. in those films um, yeah. rather than trying to take the story to preach a different gospel or a different yeah. message. Yeah. Um, but that so often happens that we take the idea. It's interesting, actually, I was um, a few years ago chatting to um, a friend who knew or knew of Douglas Gresham. I think they were best yeah. friends. Yeah. Um, who owns the rights to um, the Chronicles of Narnia. So yeah. when the Narnia film was being made, um, there were people kind of putting their bids to kind of make these stories. Yeah. And thankfully, because he wanted to preserve the, you know, not just the, the stories, but the, mean, you know, the meaning behind the stories, yeah. um, he had the final say on whether, you know, yeah. scripts, uh, the scripts were going to be written and, yeah. and, the, and the films and so on, had a lot of influence. And the amount of scripts he turned down, apparently, because basically they were trying to take out some yeah. of the core aspects of Narnia yeah. using yeah. this kind of the popularity of the stories, mm. but then to communicate a very different message yeah. to what Lewis yeah, would have yeah, done. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, um, not that Bond is a gospel analogy in any way like Narnia is, but that idea that you kind of almost rape this popular yeah. concept to preach a very different message. Yeah. No, that, that's really. I think that's a really good point. And it is terrifying what Amazon might do with with uh, Lord of the Rings. Um, and you're so right that you know what Peter Jackson was was very helpful at preserving it. Though I think the Hobbit tr- franchise, a few more wokey type things started coming in. It was almost mm. inevitable. But um, and one of those things that, that Tolkien often is um, critiqued for is his more black and white view of good and evil. Mm. Um, and I, I was really frustrated to hear. I remember an interview years ago with a writer I really like. He's quite a postmodern novelist. He'd probably be called a postmodern novelist in some way. Um, David Mitchell, mm. um, not the comedian David Mitchell, but the writer David Mitchell. Really, really brilliant storyteller. Like, and all his his novels are just full of bizarre adventures and things that go all around the world. And there's time zones that switch. It's a really fascinating writer. Um, his worldview, though. It's 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 interesting because it's in some sense you get you get the sense that he's influenced by people like Tolkien Lewis, which I, I remember. I, and I I asked him that question at one of those you know awesome meet and greet Q and A things, uh, one of the book signing things, mm. and he actually said in in one, in one of that he was he was asked what he was told once that I think what he does in his novels he's almost doing a kind of Middle Earth because there's so many different lands and different things going on. Um, but he he doesn't like he deliberately critiques the good and evil motifs of of uh, of the likes of Tolkien and Lewis because he thinks mm. they're not they're not grey enough they're not mm. you know true to reality that's always what we're mm. hearing that's sort of those sorts of writers and those sort of figures are the ones now who who seem to kind of make headway in this sort mm. of culture because we don't like the heroic motifs so that's why mm. in in a way that's why the Bond thing doesn't matter but it does matter. Because it does mm. tell you something about where a culture is going, and and I think you know, the, thinking of a um, why do heroes matter? Why does the heroic motifs matter? Obviously, 
the gospel itself. Bond isn't isn't a gospel narrative by any means, but um, you, you, there's, the, the notion of the heroic is important. And I think um, I think I had a really great Tracy, the D- Douglas Wilson I've mentioned a couple of times before. Um, when he does catechism for his children, or when he did and still does for his grandchildren, when they kind of have like meals together, he'll go over the same kind of things. Like, what is the story of the Bible? And you ask the children, and then they answer, um, kill the dragon, get the girl. Mm-hmm. That's the story of what the Bible is. And there's something about that that, that is almost what, if I had to make a tenuous link to Bond, that's what Bond films tend to do, kill the mm. bad guy and then and get the girl. Mm. Obviously, mm. in the case of, of, of the Bible, it's Jesus coming for his bride, which is the church, yeah. uh, which is a wonderful analogy. I don't think it would probably be very problematic to push that analogy too far with some of Bond's exploits. Uh, but but um, yes. it's interesting. Um, but but I, we probably could, yeah. I mean, that, that's just the whole thing on, on the postmodern stuff. I wonder if, um, maybe Andy, you can jump in on that, but I wanted to maybe... We go back to the fragility thing on more masculinity, maybe. But I could save that, or, or do you want to jump in on the culture stuff first? No, just um, just on that. I mean, I, I'm glad you made the link to to Tolkien because actually one of my one of my birthday presents kind of kind of yesterday was uh, my my kids. I think with my wife's help because at six and nine, I think they this was they they scored too high on this. They got me the, every year the Tolkien Society put out a calendar, and so they bought me the 2022. Um, wow. Tolkien Society Canada, and it's mm-hmm. gorgeous. It's uh, the artwork for next year is the by by Canadian Tolkien illustrator called Ted Naismith, and it's all from the Silmarillion, mm-hmm. and it's just beautiful. So it's a really kind of beautiful kind, of, and it just reminds you of just the, the depth of world building that mm-hmm. Tolkien did, because you know Ted and the introduction to the calendar talks mm-hmm. about how as an artist, you know, I mean Tolkien is just phenomenal. There's so much mm-hmm. material kind of yeah. in there, but yeah, yeah. you know the, the the point you make about the loss of the categories of good and evil, I think is. It's a not insignificant one by, by a long way. I mean, there's a, we haven't got time to, to pursue this one down, but you think about the number of Disney movies now, for example, where they'll go back and retell a fairy tale from the perspective of the, of the bad person. Yeah. They'd rather have a clean-cut villain. You know, now we get Cruella mm-hmm. Deville's story mm-hmm. or we get um, Maleficent yeah. and, and others where it's like, oh, it turns mm-hmm. out these these, you know, so-called sort of, uh, you know, sort of villains, actually, it's not really their fault. You know, the Wicked mm-hmm. Stepmother, it's because she was neglected as a child or, uh, you know, Cruella was actually, you know, horribly mistreated as a young girl and that's why she now wants to mm-hmm. puppies or whatever. Mm-hmm. And to go, the, the kind of graying of those, of those yeah. categories. And I think that ties into a much bigger issue in culture that we have lost our moral compass mm-hmm. on a whole mm-hmm. range of, of things um, because of the relativism that seeped in and it's seeped into culture and it's now... Uh, seeped in popular culture but of course one of the things that Tolkien did that um that I think was so significant of course Tolkien didn't invent the idea but I think he really gave flesh to the and mapped out the whole concept of you know so-called eucatastrophe so catastrophe is when everything's going really well and then suddenly everything blows up and it all ends in disaster that's catastrophe but Tolkien kind of coined this new term eucatastrophe which is the reverse of that when everything looks like it's going badly and then suddenly there's that incredible turn and actually, there's, there is the happy ending. There is the good ending. And of course, theologically, the gospel story is a eucatastrophe. You know, Jesus has this incredible ministry. It looks like it's all going well. Then suddenly, oh my word, he's arrested. He's on trial. He's killed. The disciples are hiding out in utter despair. You know, we thought this guy was the Messiah. It's all over. And then suddenly, bang, along comes Easter Sunday morning. And it's the greatest eucatastrophe of all. And Tolkien wove that theme into things like Lord of the Rings. And you can trace it in yeah. fiction. As well, but I think yeah. we've forgotten that category to some extent, not mm-hmm. totally, um, mm-hmm. because culture is not, you know, not entirely 
in, in you know lost but i think we are increasingly yeah. struggling to understand that category anymore everything is doom and gloom and nihilism well hello part of the gaps listeners well this is just a uh, reminder that uh, part of the gaps is a listener supported podcast uh, myself and aaron and michael uh, we do this on our own time just because we love the show and uh, there are costs though involved in running a podcast and we are hugely grateful uh, to those of you who listen regularly who have begun to get behind Pod of the Gaps and support it. We have huge plans for how we'd love to expand Pod of the Gaps, the topics we are we can cover, uh, the quality of the recordings, the reach of the show, but we can only do that with your help. So if you're a regular listener and enjoying Pod of the Gaps, do check out our Patreon page. You can find a link in the show notes and you can sign up and support the uh, podcast for as little as £1 or $1 uh, a month. We're beginning to put some bonus kind of content onto our Patreon page for subscribers. So over the uh, the months ahead, we've got some great plans to put some stuff there, especially for you who support the show. So uh, if you already support us, thank you for doing that. If you don't, please do consider it. Uh, and meanwhile, I hope you're enjoying this particular episode and let's get straight back in to the discussion. Here's Aaron. And that, that's where, I mean, <laughs> coming back to Bond, <laughs> it, um, it's funny that, uh, what did you guys make of that then? In the sense of the end, I mean, are we allowed to say we are doing spoiler alert, aren't we? So this turn off spoiler now. Spoiler alert: You haven't seen the new Bond film. Um, you know, I don't know. Skip over the next five minutes. Look away now. Yeah, but it's it's like obviously he kind of dies in this. There, there's an oblivion, a sense of oblivion. He gets an airstrike on top of him. He's pretty. Like, I mean, it's literally, it's literally like the death of Bond. So it's the death of Bond, metaphorically and literally. Um, in in in, in, the, in the end of the film, and there does seem to be this it's dramatic catastrophe, um, but it's clearly not what you're saying. It's not doesn't strike me as a new catastrophe. Some I presume some could interpret it though, um, if we were trying they were trying to be charitable as a semi Christ like um, sacrifice uh, because he's dying for the sake of not infecting others or dying so that no one else you know that the destruction is kind of brought upon him. So even there, there, there would be a sense of is there. Is is that ending semi Christ like? Is there a kind of heroic mm. element to it, or is it sort of um, more problematic than that? Yeah, well, we were kind of discussing this before, and we're saying, you know, on the one hand, you could read it that way if you wanted to be kind of generous. On the other hand, you could kind of say, well, in a Bond film, they could have quite easily got him off that island in the time available, mm. even after opening up the uh, the um, the missile doors mm. um, and everything else. Um, and you know you're writing the script. You can you can get Q to come up with some solution to the problem that Bond is in, or he just has to socially distance and keep two meters apart from his wife for the rest of his life. I mean, like that would be very contemporary, wouldn't it? Yeah, that's right. Um, but uh, but actually, yeah. So so there wasn't that sense. I mean, we were just mentioning um, um, Armageddon, you know, Bruce Willis. Mm-hmm. You know, in that you kind of get this kind of in the moment. Mm-hmm. You know, here is this guy giving his life to rescue mm-hmm. and you didn't get that feeling at the end. You got a sense of here is a guy who is defeated, who's given up like, and, and doesn't see any purpose in trying to get off now. Um, it didn't kind of, you know, there are so many films that do have that kind of Christ-like sacrificial thing. And it's wonderful. You know, think of one of the, you know, the Batman films, you know, that kind of sense of like, wow, it's amazing. But you didn't get that. And you watch people coming out of the cinema and it was just flat. People were just thinking, Oh, yeah. Uh, like you know um it, it felt like when you lose at the like 93rd minute in football yeah. and you just feel like down for the whole week yeah <laughs> yeah yeah. yeah i think the point the other 
as a slight aside, one thing I found fascinating, you commented there about people coming out very flat. That was the same when we watched it in Dundee, was that it was really interesting because often there's a buzz after a movie, you know, right? But there wasn't. It was, sort of it was like it was like walking out of a funeral. Actually, people just sort of shuffled yeah. out in, yeah. in in silence with a kind of what the heck was that yeah. expression going? Yeah, yeah. Now, and what was interesting, we were talking a bit about this before we started recording. If you go and look at the reviews for No Time to Die, it's quite interesting. All the kind of you know media reviews are, are pretty overwhelmingly positive. I, I I had a you know I've been looking the last few days. I couldn't really find a kind of mainstream, you know, newspaper or whatever, giving it, you know, the the, the, the boot. I mean, you know, The Guardian mm. absolutely loved it. They could, you know, normally The Guardian and the kind of left-leaning media hate Bond, but they yeah. were like, just yeah. fawning yeah. over themselves. And yeah. the BBC and everything. So they were all like, all the kind of establishment were like, this is great. It's a, you know, very different Bond. If you go and look at the popular reviews, if you go to something like IMDB, the Internet Movie Database mm. kind of website, where people can write their own kind of reviews, you know, Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of reviews pouring in now. And it splits. So I'm not going to say it's the opposite, but it's much more diverse. It, the movie's like Marmite. And I find mm. that fascinating, that disconnect between the kind of, I suppose, the, the literate who are sort of mm. telling you this is the movie you mm. should like. I mean, after all, it's, you know, it's Bond-sensitive and it's mm. got a black female, super, you know, 007, and it's full of all this other stuff. And then I think the common people are like, mm, I'm not so sure. And like that mm. disconnect... Hmm. Intrigues me actually, and I think that's really interesting because um, to bring it back to Tolkien, I know we're discussing Bond, but um, at your recommendation, Andy, I've been reading Tom Shippey's book on um, oh yeah uh, on yes. uh, on Tolkien, author of, the century. author of the century, right? Yeah. Uh, which is a fascinating book. But in the introduction, one of the things he says is what's interesting is the literati, as he calls them, you know, the the kind of literary critics. Uh, you know, at the time it was written, and ever since, really, have just slated Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Um, it's never been popular to kind of the professional critics, but it has become the book of the century. It's yeah. one of the most popular books of all time. It is still loved. It's made into films and so on. Yeah. And there's this disconnect between what we're told we should like and what people actually like and what we're told we shouldn't like and what people like. And it, I was th- thinking of that again as I came out of the cinema, reflecting on the reviews that I'd seen and then just looking at people's faces as they came out, saying, isn't it interesting? We're being told, you should like this film. This film is true to life. This is real. And then I was thinking, well, why is that? And one of the things that I think comes out in the uh, book on Tolkien is this sense that actually when your worldview, and predominantly now a lot of the critics of, of films have a very bleak worldview yeah it's not a worldview shaped by the gospel then your view of reality is that reality is bleak like at the end of the day we're heading for annihilation like there is no hope and therefore you do become cynical of stories that have happy endings you become cynical of stories that have heroes because you say well that's not true to life we want a real film that's true to life and and actually therefore it needs to be bleak and all the characters need to be messed up and there needs to be no hope at the end but actually as a christian you want to say no 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 actually it is the stories that have heroes, that is the stories that have hope, that are ultimately true to life. Uh, maybe not true to, you know, today, but true to the big story of where the universe is going. And, you know, I, one of the things that I did as I got home last night, because I was feeling really down, was just to think, thank goodness, thank goodness that is not indicative of what life is really like. Yeah, yeah. Thank goodness that as a Christian, I know that life is actually maybe like some of the other bonds, not in the misogyny and everything else, but in the sense of there is a hero, and evil is going to be defeated, and there is hope, and there is going to be a happy ending. And that is because they will, they will be. The gospel says that. And, and actually, maybe even though 
clearly lots of the people who like traditional bonds are not necessarily Christian is reflective of the fact that actually we're wired to want that kind of story. Um, yeah. No matter how much we're told that we can't yeah. have it and we should like depressing yeah. stories. Yeah. That's it. I think, uh, go on, uh, right. you go. You go. Yeah, well, I was just going to say, I mean, interesting. I mean, with, with all the Bollywood stuff going on at Cliff College of late, <laughs> I, I got chatting to one of my old school friends who's not a Christian. I uh, know, a uni friend, this was a uni housemate. Um, not a Christian. And we were chatting about Bollywood. He's like, oh, actually, I, I've been watching, so I've been watching Bollywood recently. So uh, who's the guy who was in it? I was like, oh, I have to look it up. And then he said he got into Bollywoods in a, in a weird way, almost like ironically, like they just started watching one, like this would be fun, funny to see. And what they noticed was the significant difference in the he- heroes in that mm. culture, shaped very differently to the kind of Christendom culture, which has shaped the West. Mm. So, so again, I don't want to, I don't want to make too many clear links between like everything in Western culture and Christianity. That's very dangerous to do that. Mm. But clearly we've been saying a few times on the show there are Christian values that are just in the water and people don't even realise it. So even though they're trying to wrest them away from the soil, now you, you can't get rid of that entirely, which is why even the new bond does have some um, elements which are still there, which are, uh, come from a kind of Christian backdrop. But you're saying some of these heroes, they just did stuff that's completely shocked him, but they'd be like a kind of Bruce Willis-style character. And whereas normally what happens in a Western film, well, these action film classic heroes, these masculine heroes... Um, they'll be very, very tough and very strong, but they'll also show mercy at like key points, or they won't do the kind of vindictive, horrible thing. They'll kill someone when, like, in defense, or they'll kill someone who has a particular kind of justice, a motive, whatever, for, for doing so. But usually they'll restrain themselves at some key moment, um, and there's some kind of mercy shown often. And in these ones, that they just watch some of these Bollywood movies and where that, that wasn't the case. I don't know, to be honest, I haven't watched um, enough to, or any really to know that this is true. But from his report, it's just interesting. He was reflecting and saying, and for the first time I realised, oh, um, I've, I've come to expect certain things of heroes um, because of what what then I was saying. Actually, that's probably there's more about Christianity. He said, and he actually identified that those being uh, Christian traits, which are not there in some other cultural uh, form. So it's just a fascinating kind of thing to observe. Like again, a hero who would just do something completely vindictive at a different moment. And now, of course, the problem. This is why we're talking about this in a way. The evolution of that, or the transcend, not transcending, was quite the word. Mutating of that kind of heroic motif is more troubling than people would realise. Which is why you, I think you both um, noticed that, didn't you? The the review different. Obviously, I've not read any reviews yet. Having f- come fresh from the cinema, I've just yeah. got you guys are my only reviewers, <laughs> so, um, mm. fellow reviewers. So, so it's interesting to see how those things play out, and, and it's mm. more indicative than you'd realise of not only the death of culture, but again the need to show how the gospel is different um, to the kinds of things that the worldviews that we're seeing—the nihilism and the, the oblivion, which was kind of a theme in the film—oblivion and kind of everything kind of going into mm-hmm. death and, and catastrophe, but without something coming out, without resurrection, without kind of genuine hope. Yeah, I think as well, I think the other thing, the whole discussion is is helpful. And I hope one idea that we're planting in the minds of of listeners is I think film can be an incredibly helpful starting point for kind of gospel-orientated kind of conversations with our Mm -hmm. friends. Because, you know, sometimes it can be really hard to start conversations about spirituality or faith or theology with our workplace, friends, colleagues, neighbours, and so on. And um, and I think this is just a reminder. This conversation has been a reminder, really, that um, you know, film is a great way of doing it. You know, if you've seen the Bond film and your neighbour has to say, you know, when you're chatting about it over the garden fence, you know, to be able to say, you know, I was really struck by the lack of hope in it. You've got a you can use it to start a conversation, and I think we often miss that opportunity. 
And I think hope is the big is the big thing. Hope is the is the is the tone that's increasingly missing in culture. A lot of popular mm-hmm. culture missing things like Bond, um, Black Mirror. We've talked about in the show before. You know, does a really good job with diagnosing everything that's wrong, but doesn't offer any solution or any, any hope. And so I think, yeah, I think you, despite all of the flaws and all the mess in something like Bond, you can still use it to start those conversations. Yeah. You know, why is it we react? Why is it the, why is it the audiences didn't all cheer at the end and go as a piece of Hollywood spectacle? Because I think people instinctively knew that the new catastrophe was was missing. Um, so let's use it to start conversations and then yeah. put it back in again. Mm. Absolutely, and I think that's probably quite a good place to draw stumps. Partly because it's now ten to one, and uh, I've got to get a plane to Spain in the morning. Um, you're, but that's you're really like, you're like a, a secret agent, are you, Michael? What's this a secret agent, right? yes. Uh, if this was Bond, I would be going off to uh, chase the villain in Madrid tomorrow morning. <laughs> That's right. Uh, but sadly not. Well, perhaps not sadly not. Happily not. Uh, <laughs> going to speak to a group of budding evangelists instead. Uh, but as Andy said, I think that's really helpful. And actually, one of the reasons why we've had this discussion and actually why we do part of the gaps is we hope that these conversations help mm-hmm. you have conversations yeah. uh, with work colleagues, with neighbours. And as people are talking about this film, and I guess quite a lot of people are saying, actually, I didn't like it as much as the reviewers did. That gives us an opportunity to mm-hmm. say, why do you think that is? Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people will have an instinctive feeling that something's wrong but won't necessarily be able to put their finger on it. And maybe one of the things we can do is help them explore why uh, that might be the case and bring something of the hope of the gospel uh, into that conversation. So we hope you found this helpful. As always, if you've liked Pot of the Gaps, then uh, do make sure you subscribe on your favourite podcatcher of choice. Uh, do leave us a review as well. That's really helpful and um, always encourages other people. Uh, do spread the word. And if you'd like to support us, uh, we should hasten to add that uh, we haven't used any of the Pot of the Gaps funds to go to the cinema this week. Although I was kind of regretting buying the extra large seats and the extra large screen because uh, uh, I felt that that was not a good investment of our money yesterday. But uh, but if you'd like to help support us, then you can do that as well. The details um, are there um, in the show notes and you could support us uh, and enable us to keep on uh, doing this uh, week in, week out. Uh, but I uh, hope you found that helpful and uh, whatever time of day uh, you have listened to this we hope you have a good afternoon evening good night um, and we will uh, be with you again shortly but thanks for joining us for this mm-hmm.